what we call the mean time between the fulfillment of God's promises and God's, God's purposes for us, the fulfillment of our dreams, our prayers, and where we are now. And a lot of times, we experience what we call the mean time, in the meantime, before everything gets fulfilled physically, we experience this time in the middle. Uh, and we talked about the fact that sometimes mean time means it's kind of mean as well. The word mean meaning small, it's insignificant mean. Yeah? Uh, he, so when we say it's no mean thing that he did, that means we are saying he's no, it's no small thing. And sometimes when we are experiencing God, we are actually filled with promises, we have hopes and all that. But there is a way in which in between, there's this in-between time in which we don't know what to do with. So we looked at, uh, in our first session, we looked at Psalm 84, and we talked about how in the meantime, as the pilgrims were making their way towards Zion, towards Jerusalem, there's this wilderness that they were going through. And in this wilderness, they go through valleys. And the amazing thing about the scriptures is that Psalm 84 tells us that in the meantime, we can experience the fullness of God. In the meantime, even before things have been fulfilled, we can experience the reality of God's uh, power and His refreshing and His presence upon us in such a way that the meantime doesn't feel mean. How's that? Meantime can be a very rich time. Last week, we looked at uh, one aspect of meantime, and which, we, which we'll actually look at again, and it is in Psalm 63. And if you can turn with me to Psalm 63, I'm reading from the ESV, the uh, English Standard Version. There's this aspect of meantime, in between time, that feels like a dry and weary land. And so I'm going to read it from verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul shall be satisfied as with fat and rich food. So you're talking about being satisfied in the meantime. That's not bad, right? And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, even in the night seasons, even in the darkness. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. And my soul clings to you, your right hand, upholds me. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. What he's saying is this, in the meantime, while I'm seeking you, I haven't actually found you yet. I'm experiencing these amazing things that are taking place. When I reach out to you, I cling to you. Clinging is not necessarily a, a, a victorious uh, action. It is like desperate. Clinging, I'm clinging. I did not used to like the word clinging in the Christian language because I brought, brought up in a sort of a, a, a Christian tradition in which we are always overcomers. We are overcomers. We are always strong. We never, we never cling. We always overcome. But here it is, cling. So there are going to be times in, meantime, in the meantime in which we are just clinging on. We don't have much strength. We don't have much hope. We don't have much evidence, not, not, not much encouragement. And it feels like you're alone, meantime. But I will put it to you that meantime is the most crucial time in which God would build substance in us, so much so that our future depends upon meantime. And we talked about this when we talked about Joseph. When he went through slavery, he went through the stripping of his promises, his dreams. He went through imprisonment. And in each of these moments of meantime, God did small things in his life. Small things were beginning to happen. And one of the things that happened was that when he was in prison, there were two people that came along the way who went, went into prison, the cupbearer of the pharaoh, of pharaoh, the king, and the baker. And they had these dreams. These dreams were significant. 
Uh, it's very important to understand that in, in the Hebrew as well as the Egyptian tradition, people were much more tuned into dreams than they are now. We tend to think of dreams kind of in a Jungian or Freudian way, kind of this is, a, this is kind of psychological. But the Egyptians as well as the Hebrews understood when a dream was significant. They understood dreams, not all dreams, they were able to discern, they were able to kind of have a very nuanced understanding of dreams. They were able to understand that some dreams were communication from the gods. Egyptians understood that. And the Hebrews also understood that. So that when, when Jacob had a dream um, at Bethel, he understood that was the presence of God. Okay? They had a very different understanding of dreams than we do. We tend to be a little bit more reductionistic. But anyway, Joseph saw them. They were very troubled. They came to him and they, said, they mentioned their dreams and he interpreted the dreams. Now, he didn't interpret the dreams because he read a book about dreams and all that kind of stuff. He did it supernatural. God gave him tremendous insight and he could hear from God. By the time, and by that time in meantime, he had a, such a sharpened hearing from God, such a sharpened understanding of God, communication with God, God, that he was able to sharply discern in a prophetic way what was going to happen to them. True enough, it happened. Joseph, uh, what, um, he prophesied that one of them would be um, released from prison and the other one would be released from his head. His head would be cut off. And it actually came to pass. By the time Pharaoh had a dream of his own, he had heard a rumor that, wrote, that Joseph had developed this tremendous supernatural power to interpret dreams. And so he calls Joseph out and says, I've heard it said of you that you can interpret dreams. I've heard it said of you that you can actually hear the, the gods. And what we saw is that in the meantime, Joseph had developed this tremendous empowerment, it's a supernatural gift to be able to interpret dreams in such a way that he could tell what the dream meant into, for the future. We said last week that um, the meantime is the time in which we go through tremendous drought, tremendous valleys. But it is in this time that God is doing a very crucial work in our life. And that work has to do with training us, tuning us, stripping us, breaking us down, but making us so much so that that spirit life within us will be overflowing, will be developed. And so Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've heard it said of you that you can interpret dreams. Somehow in the small things that he was doing, God was training Joseph to be able to discern the voice of God. Amen? I will put it to you that this meantime that you're going through, even though it, means, it seems like you're being squeezed tremendously, is the time in which God is putting in you something that Pharaoh called, I've heard it said of you. You know what's an I've heard it said of you? It is a reputation that's built up bit by bit when God begins to use you in supernatural ways, so much so that people start talking about you. Can you imagine? I've heard it said of you. And all of us are being built with a, I've heard it said of you. That is your future. If you don't have an, I've heard it said of you, you don't have a basis for the things that God wants to take you to from, from level to level. And sometimes, the way in which he does this, he say, cuts us down. He cuts us down. So much so that we have nothing except God. We can't see anything. It's completely dark. It's completely the midnight hour. And it's in this place where when we are completely shut down with our physical eyes, there's another faculty that comes because Jesus has given us his life 2,000 years ago on the cross. And it begins to build up. And it begins, when it build, builds up, we begin to realize we are not just what we sense with our senses. We are more than that. 
And it's in this that God begins to do a work. Meantime, meantime, meantime. I'd like to talk a little bit. This is our last session that we'll talk about meantime. This is a meantime three. Last week was meantime two. Week before, meantime one. Okay, meantime. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that because of the fact that um, if we can understand what's happening in the meantime, we will know how to work with God and have a future and a hope. Yes? Amen. All right. Let's read it from verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in the dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. That's an amazing thing. That what the psalmist is saying is this, in, this midst, in the midst of this dry place, in dry, dreary place where there's no water, we begin to see things in the sanctuary. That in the midst of this, God is going to give us tremendous revelation. Isn't that amazing? I think about it this way. You know, I learned when I was a young kid, when there's not much water in the hose, and I'm supposed to water my, my mom's flowers, and there's not much water, and the tap is glowing, and there's just kind of a dribble there. Have you ever tried to water plants like that? I realized that if I squeeze the hose, what happens? The water shoots out a bit more, right? And if I squeeze it hard, there'll be less water, but it is pointed, and it is more focused, and it goes further. Is that amazing? Wow, what an amazing thing. More water goes to the plants than if I didn't squeeze it. The squeezing is an important part of the God's work in our lives because it gives us, gives our prayer more focus. It gives us more, more, more our prayer more pitch. It goes further. Does it make sense? Sometimes we have to be a bit desperate, and we are be, we have to experience some of the dealings of God in order for us to have greater and more effective and more powerful prayer. Have you found when you're desperate, you the 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 the, the Agon or the agony with which you pray, the desperation you pray, the focus that you pray, is actually greater? Yeah? When I was fearful, I found that I, how, how I prayed when I was anxious, that God uses the anxiousness to pray, cause me to pray with much more fervency, much, much more focus. My holes got squeezed. And what happens in during, during dry and weary times, in the in-between in, in times, God is actually automatically and naturally squeezing your hose. Not just so that less water comes in, because in some ways squeezing is, 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 is blocking the water, right? You're actually blocking it, but actually so that the power of, that, the, of, of the, the water will be stronger. And I'd like to talk about that because this is a really important phenomenon. I find that Christians pray more powerfully when they are desperate. I pray more powerfully. I listen to God more carefully. I actually found that I could hear from God certain things that I could never hear of God on when, when things were very peaceful. I was pressed in and I was motivated to actually pray. But there's something more that was, than just motivation. There's something about the way in which when I started praying, when I was anxious, or I was desperate, or I was fearful, or I was, uh, I was concerned, there's something about the focus that actually happened. If you are in meantime, and you are experiencing something like that, you are going to be experiencing more focus, more intensity, and more resources to be able to pray. Okay? But there's this squeeze that actually happens. You're being squeezed during this time. You're squeezed into a smaller space. And that's one of the things that actually happens that we may not realize. And that is that when God fulfills His promises to us, He fulfills it by growing it from something very small. Something really small, yeah? From small things. Just as Joseph began with a small thing, like a dream. 
But that dream contains the seed of something really big. Okay, let's talk about this. We're not used to this, right? We're not used to this. We're used to things coming immediately. We are more used to things coming full-blown. And so when we are, you know, we're looking at life and we're praying, we're expecting immediate answers. You know, when I was in my former church, I've shared with you many things about our former, my former church that I used to pastor. Um, we experienced tremendous miracles, tremendous things that God was doing in, in, in people's lives. We saw huge miracles. We saw the raising of the dead. We saw people who were burnt, you know, 65, 70% of their bodies burnt, come back and be completely healed. We saw the deaf see, uh, the deaf, deaf hear, the blind see. We saw all these things. But you've got to understand, a lot, a lot of times, when we first started the church, one of the things that we did was that we spoke about healing, we spoke about God's being faithful to His Word tremendously. We talked about it a lot. But one of the things that people would say is that, why is it we talk so much about these things, but we get so little? We thought, you know, we would talk so much about healing, we talk hours about healing, and the healing that we get is maybe a headache, gastrointestinal pains, being relieved. Mostly headaches. And I used to preach about healing and how God does miracles. And all of you experienced was headaches being healed. Have you experienced that? We talk about these great things that God wants to do, but we experience a little bit. And so what happened is that some of us in, our, in the church began to ask the question, is it real or not? Is it really true that God really heals? After all, we are only experiencing headaches. When will we get to the cancers? When will we get to the, you know, situation in which organs actually get, begin to start growing, legs get longer, you know, hearts get completely healed, blood disease get, gets actually cleared. When do we start having tumors disappear and all that? And all we were praying for, it's almost as if the tumors never disappeared. The heart diseases never got healed, but the headaches got healed. It's almost as if we said, God heals headaches, and we were tempted to say, God heals only headaches. And people used to wonder, why is it in our church only headaches get healed? And then I began to realize there is something that God wants to do, and that has to do with the, 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 the analogy of seeds. A mustard seed is very, very small, correct? The key of the kingdom is that there's a seed that's planted. The seed of faith, the seed of the Word of God is the most important thing. It may look very, very small, but the way in which God does mighty and big things is He starts by growing a small thing. And I didn't realize that. I thought that if God says He does these things, He'll just do it immediately. We are so functional, we are so utilitarian that we are used to things happening fast and immediately. True? I thought that if God says He will heal, that He will immediately heal. Of course He should be healed. I didn't realize that how God begins to, to grow His kingdom is that He puts a seed in us, and the kingdom of God is like in, in a mustard seed, like leaven that we, saw, we, we talked about a few weeks ago. And He puts that thing in us. That thing is a genuine but very small conviction that God can heal. It starts with the Word of God. Word comes by hearing. Uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, right? How the nature of the kingdom is, is not by immediate cause and effect most of the time. It comes by God planting a seed in His people so that you, ha you begin with a conviction. The conviction can come in the form of your quiet time. It can be uh, in the form of a word that's spoken up here. It can be a word that God gave you when you were singing a song or worshipping Him and the conviction just dropped in your heart like a little seed. Not big, not big, but it's something that's there. Does that make sense? And when that convic conviction actually happens, when it drops, you can actually feel, oh, I actually believe this. Doesn't mean you don't doubt. Yeah? No, they... Faith and doubt can exist completely side by side. 
but it drops inside. And what happens is that we have faith to believe for a headache. Somehow, headaches get healed. What you need to do, and what I need to do, is to use that seed. If you don't, if you don't use it, you will not see it grow. You want to water it, pray over it, and focus it and believe it and receive it. Amen? Yeah? So that seed is really important. So we as a church, uh, back, back, back home in Malaysia, we started praising God. Whenever somebody got a headache and got healed, we said, praise God! Oh, hallelujah! You, would, you think that you were healed of cancer. But they were healed of a headache. But we began to make a big deal. Begin to focus on it. Begin to rejoice before it. Be grateful for it. And what happened is that that thing began to grow. Began, began, bigger. Amen? There came a time in which cancers were being healed almost routinely. But we had to start from there. And I may I suggest to you that we, the most important thing in the meantime is you start with small things. What will happen in the meantime is that God will contract you and contract us. He will make us smaller. So that when we are smaller, we will be able to recognize small things that the Holy Spirit is doing. If you can't recognize small little particles that God is putting in us, you will not be a person of the kingdom because you can't discern it. You haven't started from the smallest. You're waiting for the biggest. Anybody can, any idiot can see the big, big things. But only a person who is discerning, who has a heart, can see it in the, in the small and recognize that that's not all there is. Amen? That's really important. I began to realize that that was a, such, a, such an important part of my life. That the kingdom of, the, of God is in the form of seed. It's not in the form of cause and effect. Now, our society is not used to it. Our society is only used to very quick results. And because of that, our soul is very, very weak. Our ability to be creative is very, very weak. Our, our, our faculties are atrophying. In fact, there's an article in Plough magazine by a person that I'd like to, I, I, I'd like to, uh, to, to, to read from. And his name is Jeff, Jeffrey Bilbo in Plough magazine. He talks about the fact that creativity is atrophied because of the fact that we depend so much on, on AI. AI, right? How many of you have heard of chat GPT? You have chat GPT? They can do it for you, man. You don't need to be creative. They'll give you immediate answers, give you immediate results. Chat GPT. You can, read, you can, you can, you can write a poem just like Lord Byron to your boyfriend or your girlfriend. I'm going to read to you something that is, a, is, a, <laughs> is an example of it, right? Girlfriend receives a, a picture that has been sent over by her, by her boyfriend who's working out. So he takes this picture of himself, a selfie, right? In the, in the gym, sends it to her. She wants to make him feel good. She wants to make him feel good. She wants to affirm her, him. But she doesn't have the time to go and actually create words, to actually be able to uh, actualize a real emotion and put an, a real emotion into words. But she knows there's AI and there's chat GPT, Right? And so she, did, she just wants the effect of like making her man feel good about himself. So she goes to it and she reaches for it and she see, looks at the picture, doesn't put her own words in it, and she writes back with the help of Chad GPT. Hey, and she's told, write your boyfriend's name. Norman, hey Norman, oh my goodness, I just received the picture you sent, she writes, and I can't find the right words to describe how incredibly hot and muscular you look, exclamation mark, you have to use exclamation marks because 
periods don't mean anything anymore. We are, our, our language is just way up. We've maxed out our language. And we've cheapened it. Look, and I have... I can't, this is so powerful, I better read it again. I can't find the right words to describe how incredibly hot and muscular you look. Exclamation mark. You've been putting in the hard work at the gym. Sounds familiar, right? You've been putting in the hard work at the gym, and it's definitely paying off. Your dedication and commitment to staying fit and healthy are truly impressive. See how, how commerce uses the word truly in that way often. Seeing you with your shirt off. Okay, I'm just going to read it, okay? Just, seeing you with your shirt off, all those well-defined muscles, it's absolutely mesmerizing. Mesmerizing. I can't help but feel a surge of attraction every time I see you like this. Your physique is a testament. Oh, testament to your discipline and determination. It's not just about the external experience, appearance. It's about the confidence and strength you exude. I feel so lucky to have such a sexy and amazing man in my life. You make my heart race and my knees weak. There's no more words beyond this, this super superlative. She's already maxed out. She's over the top already. She's, she's exhausted the English language. The English language has nothing left for her. She has, she, has, she has finished off the English language and come to the very edge of the English language. The only language she can use is calculus from now on. But she's come to the edge of the English language. I feel so lucky to have such a sexy and amazing man in my life. You make my heart race and my, my knees weak. Keep up the incredible work, my handsome gym enthusiast. Love and admiration. And she puts her name, Susan. And of course, GPT says, feel free to personalize this message with your own words and sentiments. It's important to express your genuine appreciation and attraction to your boyfriend. I'm sure he'll be thrilled to hear how hard work is paying off and how much you adore his muscular physique. So Jeremy Bilbo says, success, the GP, chat GPT success at mimicking human language is an indictment of the ways we already use words. It's an indictment of the way we already use words. LLMs, which is large language models, are the technology that a culture awash in prepaid and manipulative content deserves. Yeah? So we are brought up that way, and that's how we are. Because of that, it offends us when things take a while. It offends us when we go through the dry and weary land in meantime. Because we only know that if you have a problem with your car, you take your car to the mechanic and he will fix it almost immediately. We don't understand that substance grows quantumly and in stages. Yeah? So there's, there's something that I feel that would be point number one. And every point begins with an S. The first one is, you're being squeezed. Second is, small things. Look out for small things. This summer, everything will be smaller. In, that, in many ways, people will be out, they'll be going their own ways, and you're going to have to deal with small things. There are small things that you can do. There's a certain desolation that actually happens in summer for many lives, yeah? Summer's not the most enjoyable season for me, anyway. Um, but you're going you're gonna to have to live in a, in a dry and weary land in some ways. Our, our sanctuary is not air-conditioned. Summer is going to come. And you're going to have faint comfort from the fans. Sorry. Only the strong will survive. In fact, coming to church is going to be a real sacrifice. You will be on the cross there. Every Sunday, you will be sweltering on the cross. Sitting on those pews, I will be praying for you. Summer, 
is where you look for the small things that are small blessings. But we understand during these times that God's infinite grace and power is poured into small packages during the summer. During this period, you and I are going to learn how to discern the presence of God in the small things. We're going to discern the growth path, okay? the growth uh, uh, trajectory of precious and big and huge infinite godly things. Because it's in this place we will have to look for the comfort of God, the, com- the presence of God, the word of the Lord. And you have to squeeze that hose. If you do, summer is going to make you. It's going to put within you a, I've heard it said of you, a certain reputation. Because you're going to do small things with divine help. And these divine things are going to happen. You may give someone a small word. You may get up during worship and give a little word from the scripture. It will be in these times when you will be feel led to do an act of giving to, 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 to someone who's, who God leads you to. And it will be a sacrifice. And perhaps that person will just say thanks. But you will look and find and detect God's infinite grace in that small thing. And from there, you will not just leave it alone and dismiss it. Because if you dismiss it, you will lose the blessing. You will say, wow, God. Can you say it with me? Wow, God. Say it again. Wow, God. Yes. Because you will be able to see the infinite power of God and the hugeness of God in a very small thing. Amen? You've been reading a passage of Scripture. Someone else during daily prayer reads out that passage of Scripture and he says, Wow, God. You don't dismiss it. Most people, AI, AI grown, will dismiss it. They can't tell the difference between A or B. But you will discern it. You will allow yourself to be arrested by the power of God because when that happens, you'll be able, you're able to see small things that the, the, the normal human eye cannot see. Amen? Connected that with a, a spirit of gratefulness, the spirit of gratefulness enlarges your view of this infinite power of God in a small thing. Everything depends upon how well we see small things and how well we can see them as having the trajectory of infinitely huge blessings. Amen? That's going to be really important. Okay? That's going to be really, really important. Squeeze small things. Amen? The third thing I want to mention has to do with something that we are not very comfortable with. And I'd like to describe it to you by reading Psalm 85. Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to your land, verse 1. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the inequity of your people and covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation. Put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O God, and grant us your salvation. Verse 4 and to verse 7 is a plea, it's a cry of the heart of the, the psalmist who sees that things are not well. Things are not going well. And so he appeals to God. He's pleading with God. 
He's not got an assurance that God is going to answer him. But he has precedent. And he's able to say, God, I know that you're a God who has done these things before. You've restored us before. But right now we're in a really bad spot and we really need you to come through. But this verse 4 and verse 7 is just pleading. What I call supplication. It's not spiritual warfare, it's supplication. Supplication is just pleading with God. I supplicate before God. I say, I ask Him. But I ask Him in a, in a desperate way. In a heartfelt, a deep way. I'm supplicating. I wish I can do more than supplicate, than, more than ask. I wish I had more assurance. But right now, I can only ask. Does that make sense? That's what the psalmist is doing. He's just asking. He's just asking because he's desperate, but he doesn't have an assurance that God is going to answer him. And what do you do with that? Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. And that becomes the turning point in verse 8. He's asking, he's supplicating. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Please, Lord, help me. If you don't help me, I'm done for. I'm, I'm finished. And he has to hear something. We often come to these points in our lives. And when we come to these points of our lives, we feel bad. We feel that we've sinned. We feel not good enough. We feel that we are miserable. We feel that we don't deserve anything. We feel that God doesn't have any obligation to answer our prayer. We feel that we don't deserve to remove the latchet from the shoes of God. We don't deserve it. We have no appeal except to His mercy. Yeah? We don't like that. We like to have a way in which we can ask for things with some kind of basis with some kind of right, some kind of authority. Don't you? Don't you think so? That's how I, I grew up in my Christian life. You can ask for these things because you have authority in the name of Jesus. Yeah? In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. So sometimes we use the word, in the name of Jesus, as if it will make it, give it a little bit of muscle there. In the name of Jesus. But actually, honestly, life does not owe us any of that. And God does not owe us anything in any of that. He does not. And the psalmist is, comes through what we call the agon of it, the agony of it. The agon is the struggle, the strife. Remember how it says, strive to enter to the, to the narrow door. That's the word agon. The agon has to do with the fact that I'm wrestling with it. Yeah? Samson Agonistus uh, by Milton is about that. Sam, Samson, the wrestling man, the man who wrestled. We don't like that. In the dry and weary land in the meantime, we can do work on small things. We can also squeeze the hose. But this part, this of sitting in the supplication, sitting in it, and staying in the supplication without any basis, any right, any... Um, entitlement to any answer in prayer is something that we have to reckon with and not assuage and just not push it aside. This is real. The real thing is this. We don't deserve anything from God. And God is under no obligation to fulfill all the promises that He's made because every one of these promises have a condition to them. The promises of God are invitations to enter into what He's doing. But you cannot take the promises and say, you said this, you said this, and it's going to happen. When we come before God, we come before Him supplicating, depending upon His mercy. I know many of you are saying, okay, 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 all right. Give me the encouraging thing now. There must be some twist somewhere. There's no twist. The point is that we are people who are actually very needy, and we need God to give mercy upon us. And in order for us to actually know the love of God, we have to come in that way. Because if you quote any kind of rights or entitlements that you have, 
that because of the fact that God loves us and He doesn't condemn us and all that, based upon His genialness and His goodness and His niceness and all that, that is no basis. You have to know that you deserve wrath, or as you say in America, wrath. You need to know that you are objects of mercy who should have known wrath. Wrath. Can't say it. Wrath. You have to know that. Because if you don't know that, you will not know whether God loves you or not. You will know, you know the way in which many Christians say, you're not condemned, you're not, you're accepted, you know that. You only know that. You know only that mantra. You don't know the, the way the Lord's heart is towards you because you don't know how much you owe God. Hello? You do not know that. You have immediately taken the fact that Christ has died for you on the cross and because of that, because of His great sacrifice, you have, no, you have no condemnation. Yeah, that is very true. But you don't know it. You don't know it for yourself. You don't know the love that, that drew salvation's plan, that brought it down to man. You do not know how much He loves you. You don't know the love of God. You only know God is okay with you. He doesn't condemn you. That's all. That's all you know. Do you, all you know that is that you got a free pass. That's all you know of the love of God. You don't know the heart of God. You only know that you got a free pass. And sometimes Christians can be just like that. Oh, no, 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 don't worry, don't worry, no, 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 no condemnation. There is. There is. You have to know what you did. You have to know the grace of God in its fullness. Amen? Or else you don't know. You only know not grace. You only know a free pass. And so, there's the writer to, in Psalm 85 says, will you please, will you please, I have nothing. Will you please, will you please. And there's nothing. I have to hear from God now. I'll hear what He has to say. And there's something about sitting in the supplication, sitting in that, that moment in which we have no standing before God. We truly have no standing. Except for the cross. But before we are too fertile and just patch the cross upon it and make the cross nothing, you need to know how desperate you are and how not in need to, to, to assuage our, our, your need, God is. And so he comes, he comes, and he says, I don't know, I don't know. I need you to speak to me. And so the psalmist gathers all his remembrance of what God did in his past, in the past to nation Israel. And he says, you know what, God, you did restore us before. You actually forgave us and pardoned all our sins. You know what's the difference between pardon and forgiveness? Forgiveness is you're forgiven, but you still have to bear the consequences. Pardon is no consequences. How do you get that? You pardon all our sin. And the, and the, and the, and the writer of the, of the Psalms, he comes before God and he comes and he realizes he's rock, rock bottom. This is what meantime does. It helps us to see where we really are naked before God. And God strips us. The making of the saint follows this path. You can't hide behind Bible bullets. You can't hide behind Bible things. You have to know who you are before the Lord. And you cannot rise up unless the Lord raises you up. But He will. He's already done that. He's paid the price for your sin and my sin. My misery and my misery. And so the psalmist says, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. That's where he will hear it for himself. It is at this point where the thing turns, where God actually speaks to him. Where he's not covered over by your and my benign, genial, there's no condemnation. No, 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 no. no. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. No. Ye I don't need that. I need a word from God. A word from you or me doesn't cut it. 
it will cover over. It will speak over God. You've got to let God speak it. And so supplication has to do with sitting in that agon, that wrestling until God speaks the word. And you squeeze the hose. You get squeezed yourself. You look for small, small things. Things that people never really paid attention to. You start looking for these things. You look for small blessings, a little wink, a little whisper, a little nodding of the head, a little turning of the head, a little turning of the shoulder. You th- oh, that's God. Oh, that's God. Oh, that's God. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe. And you're going through this wrestling and you're waiting, God. God, I need something more. I know, help me, help my unbelief. It's like Gideon. See, Gideon was the person who was assigned to do something and it was so huge. He's the smallest, talk about small, the smallest, the youngest person of the smallest family of the smallest tribe in one of the smallest countries. And God pours His Spirit upon him and His infinite mercy upon him. But he comes to this place where he has to hear from God himself. Meantime is when you heard that word, when it came. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears, Relieved. You cannot do it by pronouncing things all over the place. You have to be relieved by God. That is the meantime. And so when we're going through, whether it's a sickness or it's a a financial uh, desperate situation or a situation in which you feel bad about yourself, if if you're not going anywhere in the meantime, What God wants to do is to draw you close, squeeze your hose so much so that the pitch of the water is focused, it's accurate, and it's forceful. By doing that, He brings that into your soul and mind. Amen? But you have to surrender to Him for whatever He wants. I have a friend uh, who did his demis in um, Fuller. And he was a good friend of mine here. I, and I first came to, to study at Fuller during the summers. It was 1988. And he had two small boys, Jacob and Justice. And so my friend Ed told me about this situation. He told his youngest, his, 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 his the oldest son, who was maybe around four, four years old or five years old at home. If you help me to rake the leaves... I'll go with you to ice cream. Okay? Around 11 o'clock or more. Okay? He didn't give the exact time, but it says around that time. So Jacob was very, very motivated. She swept the leaves, swept the leaves. It was 11 o'clock. There were more leaves to, 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 to sweep. And he was getting impatient. Daddy, you told me I could have ice cream. You said I could have ice cream. You said it. And so my friend Ed was saying, no, keep going, keep going. We still have more leaves to do. We have more leaves to do. And he said, no, daddy. And he just got really mad. And he threatened to walk, stomp, stomp, stomp off this four-year-old. Four year so stomp off, right? Because his dad did not keep his word. His dad cannot, did not keep his word. You said, you said, you said. And so he, what he was doing, he was holding Ed to the word that he spoke. We call this nominalism, based upon words, right? The legality of these words, nominalism. Many Christians have a nominal uh, faith, that is, faith based upon the words of God, but don't know the heart of God. Okay? That's what you call nominalism. Everything's reduced to the words. So some Christians are like that. Yeah? And so Ed says, Jacob, Please help me. I need your help. And Jacob's heart melted. Because when his dad said, I need your help, he helped. And for the next half an hour to 35 minutes, according to Ed, they had a really great time of fellowship. What Ed wanted was fellowship doing stuff with his son. What his son wanted was ice cream. His son was a nominalist. You said, I want to get. Cut the crap, I just want the ice cream. 
He just wants the ice cream, right? He doesn't care about fellowship and all that. But Ed, as his father, knew there were precious things that could be shared between father and son in that time. With God, it's like that. Well, just to let you know, sometimes I leave stories hanging, and I've been told that, but I better not leave this hanging. At the end, about you know, 11.35 or something, Ed took Jacob out for ice cream. Hagendas, right? Hagendas. He's got a lot of ice cream. Lots of ice cream. So much ice cream that he couldn't finish. But they had a great time of fellowship, not only sweeping, but as well as in the ice cream. God wants good things for you and me. We want ice cream. And we hold him to his word. But his words, properly understood, have more than just the thing that we are looking for. You get a word from God, you are looking for that thing. Oh Lord, please speak to me about this particular problem. And God is speaking about more than that. He's going to give us his goodness and more than that because what we need is the more. It's not the ice cream that we need only. But he'll give us the ice cream. But if you are focused on the ice cream and not focused on the Lord, what the Lord's wanting to do, you will be poor. It will not be enough for you. Amen? We sit in the supplication. Many people have missed out on the love of God because they don't know that God is free not to love us. He's not obligated to love you or me. And if it's based upon your loveliness, then God help you. Because we're not all lovely. We're not all that. We need something more than God sees that you are beautiful and therefore He somehow sees something beautiful in you and therefore He's obligated to love you. No. He sees something beautiful, but not the way you think it is. He loves you. But He wants you to know that. He wants you to know that He loves you. And for that to happen, you have to go through the agon of like saying, nothing in my hands I bring. I will wait for you. For many years of my Christian life, I never knew the love of God. Until the charismatic movement came and it gave me a hunger for God. I realized this God that I've been reading about in books and in the Bible was real. And so because of that, my natural response to that was, I'm hungry for you, I need you but I don't know whether you love me or not. I know you're real now. I've seen the miracles. I know you're very real. I've seen the way you've transformed people, but I don't feel that you've done it for me. You're real enough for, me to be, for it to be a concern. Before, he wasn't that real, and the rest of my church members also never experienced him real. So it's this game, this dirty little secret that we all had that God, we talk all about God, but he's not real to us. But now I knew that that dirty little secret has been exposed. And now I knew that God was real, but I didn't feel His love. Could you please speak to me about whether you love me, Lord? It feels lame, right? But that was my prayer. You have no obligation to love me, even though you say God so loved the world, but it didn't penetrate me. And so the psalmist, he's talking about all the things about God that he has done before. But he has up to that point in verse 8 not experienced it himself. Meantime is a time where in the midst of all this dry and weary land, God wants to do that. And because of that, he strips us. He strips us of all those God words that we always pronounce upon each other. He loves you, he accepts you, you're beautiful, all that, all that, yeah, 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 yeah. Knock yourself out with that. But he does want to tell you that in the midst of all that, you are beautiful to Him. If you pronounce it upon yourself, it's not going to be enough. You need a word from God. And we only know something deep in us when it's been told by God to us. No family member, church member can tell you that, but I've got to tell you, He loves you. He has forgiven you already. And he will tell you that if you give him time. Amen? That's why you notice that some Christians, they can't help it. They get emotional about God. Even though it's not an emotion. 
They just talk about God. Have you heard, seen that? They can sing songs about how much they love God. One of the things that I, I, I noticed when I first came to America, there were a lot of worship songs, a lot of worship bands, all that. None of them talk about how much they love God. None of them talk about how much they are touched by God's love. They talk about His greatness. They talk about them ministering to Him, how they can set them free, and doing all these things. Great, wonderful. But never did I hear one song about how much God has touched me and moved me and broken me down, and I love Him. And I'm in my... It sounds silly, sounds stupid. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. But in my old church, I knew many people, they just, when they just they talk about God, their, heart, their, their voice quivers because they've been moved. Isaiah chapter 66 says, this is the man I look to, the one who trembles in my word. Somehow something has happened. It's going to happen for you in the meantime. You follow that. He wants you to know that he will restore you. But more than that, he wants to know how much no, he wants you to know how much He loves you. And so it says in verse 9, uh, verse 8, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. And there's a pause there. And I'll read a pause there. For He will speak peace to His people, to His saints, but let them not turn back to folly. And verse 9, surely His salvation is near at hand. Uh, I think it's NASB or, uh, and uh, KGV. King James Version that says, surely his salvation is near at hand or at hand. God is not handy. He's not handy near to us. He's at hand. You know what it means? It's getting closer. It's getting closer. He's waiting on the Lord. And here can already sense intimations of God's closeness. Isn't that wonderful? Hasn't got it yet. Hasn't got the word yet. But he's feeling the intimation of that. Summer is a time for us to give space to God for that. Amen. Give him the time. Summer can be a time of great, great, great grace, transformation in our lives. Surely his salvation is not, at, not handy, but his salvation is at hand. To those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. And righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. You see, before, all the way to verse 8, the psalmist is asking, 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 supplicating, pleading, pleading, appealing, appealing. But after verse 8, he makes statements. He says, God will give us the increase. He will, glory will dwell in our land. There's a firmness in that. He's speaking what God has spoken to him. Amen? That's what we want to do. We want to get into that because God has that for us. And you will know that he loves you, he forgives you, he's pardoned you, he accepts you. Yes, you are beautiful also. You are acceptable. Yes, you are acceptable. But you'll know it in its depths not just as a flat thing that somebody has pronounced over you. Amen? Yes. May I go over this again? You're getting squeezed. Squeeze back. Squeeze that hose. Then you will see him in the sanctuary. You will see him as small things. You'll see particles. You'll see your spirit move a little bit. See some, someone coincidentally saying the same thing as what you got during... During your quiet time, you saw you, you had a word from the quiet time, and then you switch on the Christian radio, okay? Don't despise Christian radio. You switch on Christian radio, and Christian radio says the same thing. Do you know what happened? I'll give you an example. There was, this, there was a member of our church, and uh, he was a new Christian, and uh, just had a baby, and uh, suddenly, tragically, the baby died of a sudden infant death syndrome, syndrome, died. And he was completely distraught. He and his wife were completely distraught. 
We went to pray for him. I prayed, and I was going to go for it. I want to pray for the baby to be raised from the dead. I prayed for two and a half hours there, right there in the hospital. And I prayed and prayed and prayed until there's nothing left to pray, until I was convinced that God was not going to raise the baby from the dead. And then I was left with him. He was so mad. He pulled out the phone from the, from the wall and he threw it, just threw it. It hit the uh, sound system that he had and switched on, guess what? KKLA. And KKLA spoke to him. A, 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 somebody wrote, uh, read out a pa- passage in Scripture. Precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints. Boom! Hit the thing. KKLA. Woo. See, God can use KKLA. And the message came. bow our heads. Pray. I'm just asking Michael a question just now. Um, the, if you notice today, Christina um, called out Caleb as he was running forward, and um, there's a faithfulness to that name, Caleb. The little baby that had passed away was Caleb. I feel like the Lord wants us to know today. There is a new generation, and that includes us, no matter where we are in the generations, of faithfulness to him, faithfulness to this meantime. Just as Caleb came walking down the center, Mm. God wants us to come to his presence, just like what we saw today. Mm. Amen. Bless you, Lord. Let's lift up your hearts. Before God, open open your heart towards Him. It's okay to let Him know your doubts. Or they may just be things that you're not sure of, you're not not resolved about. Bring it before Him. The best place, the starting place is honesty before God. And during this time of summer, God is going to do huge things in small packages. You may feel squeezed. And you may feel you wish you had something better than just supplication, just asking. We already know the conclusion at the back of the book. In the New Testament, Christ had victory over all things. First Peter says, chapter 1 says, there's this inheritance that he has for us reserved in heaven, incorruptible, unsullied, reserved for us. But you don't need to just know it as a fact. You can come to him. My Jesus, I love you. I know thou art mine. 
I want that kind of knowledge. And He's ready to give it to you. Give it time. Give Him space. You may be raking the leaves and just thinking about ice cream, but the Lord has more for you. Praise your name now. So yes, Lord, we come to you, even as a child. We run to you right now. And we say thank you for letting us know that you are so much more than we are, and you will always be more than we could ever be. We welcome you right now to just pick us up in your arms and put us into your sanctuary and show us the things that you so long to open up to us, the treasures that are just waiting there. We ask that you would separate us from the draw, the magnetism of the world. Let it be like nothing on us, we pray. Holy Spirit, come, fill us anew. Amen. And so we invite you, Lord, to enter into our summer, enter into all the things that we go through, the things that we plod through sometimes and sweat through. We thank you, Lord, that you open our eyes today. You open our eyes to see you even in the small things, the small packages. Thank you, Lord, for the seed. Thank you for the seed that you give to us. We bless your name. Come, Holy Spirit. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.